Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast from Teacher Magazine. I'm Jo Earp. The team's on the road this week at the ACER Research Conference in Sydney, where the theme for 2018 is Teaching Practices That Make a Difference, Insights from Research. In this special episode, we share highlights from the In Conversation session on evidence-based teaching practices between Laureate Professor John Hattie and ACER CEO Professor Jeff Masters AO. The facilitator was Tony McKay AM of the Centre for Strategic Education in Melbourne, and his first question was where Australia sits in the international educational landscape. Jeff Masters began by pointing out, we know that what really matters in the end is what teachers do in their classrooms. But I think if you look internationally, what you see is that school systems differ in the extent to which they understand there's also a role that they can play um, in supporting teachers to implement effective practices or evidence-based practices. Um, And I think the most effective school systems in the world take that very seriously. They don't just say the problem sits with with the teacher in the classroom, they'll need to work out how to handle this. Um, they say we have a role to play across the board when it comes to um, where our teachers are being recruited from, how they're being prepared and developed once they're in the profession, what resources we can provide, including, as John was saying, assessment resources um, that are going to support teachers. How, how, as a system, can we support teachers with the difficult challenge of addressing the needs of all the students in their classrooms? Um, that might mean we need to think differently about um, how we organise learning, how how we approach the curriculum. Um, But I think the best systems in the world are are taking that question seriously, seeing that they have a role to play um, in creating the conditions that make it possible and and relatively easy for teachers to implement um, highly effective practices. Well, I'm sure the three of us remember the days when you arrived on an aeroplane to Sydney Airport and from International, and before you were allowed to get up out of your seats, you had to sit there when all the baggage compartments were open and two men in socks and sandals came through and sprayed. Remember that? Yeah. What were they spraying for? Yeah, they, they tried to convince you it was about insects and fruit flies. It wasn't. It was to keep out American and British ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and since we've stopped that, we look overseas for the answers. Now, Guys, we got 23 jurisdictions in Australia, with Catholics, Independents, the states. So we've got 23 different systems. And I certainly say, as I've said to every minister, it should be a, a badge of honour that during your term as a minister, you should not go to Finland, Singapore, or Shanghai. Have you got the courage to reliably identify the excellence here in your own district and go yeah. there? And so my question is about courage. I'm not sure we have a lot of it. So I'm not a great fan of looking overseas. I don't think it's about that I think it's about the courage to recognise the excellence here and grow it. I don't know of any other country in the world that has legislated national standards for teachers, Right, Tony. Yep. We're ahead. Yep. I think we've got work to do in other areas in that area. Um, I think we're ahead in terms of um, many of our debates about assessment, particularly the work that's been going through your organisation. We're a lot more ahead in that than many other places. Uh, We've learnt a lot about autonomy in the right ways sometimes the wrong ways. I'm not a great fan that we go outside. We can learn from them, we can take it, but we have to digest and use Mm. it. 
Jeff Masters told the audience there has been quite a significant decline at 15 years of age in the performance of students in Australia, and we need to stop and think about why that's occurring. Can we understand what the reasons for that are um, and what might we do about it? And, and while I agree with John, there's a lot of excellent um, practice in this country, obviously, um, I do think we need to be open to learning from the rest of the world as well, um, having a look to see um, where, where effective practices are being implemented internationally. But I, I guess where I would agree with John is, and you, I think, um, Tony, is that we do have a pretty solid base on which to move forward. Discussing the Gonski panel report, Tony McKay said learning progressions were front and centre. Delivering the Carmel oration earlier in the day, John Hattie talked about three notions of learning progressions, a big P, middle P and little P. He explained big P progression is where there's a document outlining scope and sequence. The middle P progression is more based on what students actually do when they encounter the curriculum and any topic within it, while little P progressions involve modelling progression for each student based on their past performance and making optimal recommendations based on this information as to the next steps to optimally arrive at the desired destination. Here's Jeff Masters explaining his view on learning progressions. Um, and as John said, um, there's a challenge ahead of us to clarify what we mean by learning progressions. And, and John's um, slide with the big P, middle P, little P is, is, is helpful in that. Um, people are running around interpreting progressions differently. Um, what I'm hearing some people say is that learning progressions uh, might be good in some areas of the curriculum that, or they sit alongside the curriculum in some way. Um, they're not the curriculum, which they aren't. Um, or maybe they can be used as an assessment tool for data gathering. Um, the way that I think about a learning progression is it's simply our attempt to be more explicit and to clarify what we understand by progress or improvement or growth within an area of learning. So that understanding should underpin any curriculum. And, and people say, well, it might be okay in literacy, but it might, might not work in science. Well, if in saying that, what you're saying is I don't know what it means to get a deeper understanding and higher level knowledge and increasing skills in science. Um, in any area of learning where what we're trying to do is to develop deeper understandings or more knowledge, better skills, um, we must be able to map that out. And a learning progression, for me, is just an attempt to do that. So I, I think Gonski was absolutely right um, in saying it would be useful for us to, to, to be clearer about what the nature of progress is. And his reason for saying that was because we know um, in schools, students of the same age or in the same year of school are at vastly different levels of yeah. attainment. Yeah. And so it's important that we have formative assessment tools, if you like, to establish where students are in their learning so that teachers can think about how best to direct their learning to challenge every student at an, at an appropriate level. John Hattie used an analogy from ACER's Ray Adams. He talks about the roadmap from Melbourne to Sydney. And if you were going to draw that map out, you know, most people would come up the Hume Highway. Some would come around the Ocean Road, some would go in Nan, some would stop in, um, in Glen Rowan, maybe Gundagai to see the, 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 the dog on the, on the tucker box, etc. Some would um, start in different places. We need a kind of map that sort of helps kids understand how to most successfully get to Sydney, acknowledging where they start, what speed they take, yep. what distractions they make, and it's kind of like what GPS signals to say, you have gone on the wrong route. Wow, she's so nice, she never tells you off. She just says, re readjusting or whatever it Doing is. Doing you too. Yeah. yeah. 
that's the kind of roadmap, and the kind of big middle P that Jeff and ACR for me is middle P, that's for about 70, 80% of the kids. Yeah. Then as they say, then you need to drill down to see divergence and how people are differing. That's the kind of notional learning progressions we need to be talking about. The conversation then turned to John Hattie's call for a focus on at least one year's student learning growth for a year's input. Here, Jeff Masters gives his response. What I would say is um, we should expect every student to be making excellent progress every year. Now, that begs the question of what excellent progress is. Right. Um, but that should be our goal. And it isn't always our goal. We, we have students in our schools who are more advanced in their learning for whom the year-level expectations are low, you know, they're pretty middling expectations because they're so advanced. Um, they're getting high grades on the year-level expectations, but they're not being stretched and extended as well as they could be. So if you invoke the idea of a year's worth of growth, that's a difficult concept. And as John said, um, if we're going to continue with that, we need to explore what we mean by it. Be, and, and part of the reason is that because the most advanced 10% of students in any year level are five or six years ahead of the least advanced 10% of students, you have students scattered along the growth curve, distributed along the growth curve. Yeah. And students who are still way back here at an earlier stage in their learning, you'll expect them to make faster or, or, or yeah, faster progress, more progress in a year, um, simply because they are starting from a lower base. The most advanced kids, because you've got every growth curve is, is steep for a start and then starts to flatten off. So the, the, what, what you might expect in terms of a year's growth could be different for different students depending on where they are. So that's one possible complication in but trying to I think about that. Can I say at that point, the two parts of that sentence that are critical, as it's, it's critical as the rest. At least a year's growth for a year's input, no matter the starting point. And I worry about those kids that you're saying, uh, the ones that are the brighter, that those are the ones that we, I think we do a lot of damage to because they don't get the year. It's the, the mistake, and I understand this is a mistake, of the interpretation of a year's growth, a year of a curriculum. I'm not talking about that. So if you think of it, no matter where the starting point, in that sense, I think we're probably in screaming agreements. Agreement. Yeah, I think so. All I'm saying is um, you, you do want a year's growth for the most advanced students. Absolutely. But in an absolute sense, it might be less than the growth you'd expect of students who are starting from a lower base simply because they're on the, uh, a steeper part of the growth curve. Not sure I agree with that okay. one. Okay. The Gonski report recommends the creation of an online formative assessment tool to help diagnose a student's current level of knowledge. Tony McKay asked the two panellists, given they're going to be advising on this, what will they be saying? Well, what I'll be saying is um, we shouldn't be talking about a single ass formative assessment tool. That's the first thing. Right. Um, I think that's implied um, in, in the Gonski report, if not stated explicitly. Um, once you have developed a map of learning within a learning area, you can then use any number of um, assessment instruments or assessment processes to establish, you know, as long as they meet quality criteria, um, to establish where students are in their learning. And we already have, as you said, a number of um, formative assessment tools of various kinds that schools are using. Um, you know, more, more than 7,000 Australian primary and secondary schools are registered to use the PAT tests online, yep. for example, out of 9,444 schools last time I looked. Right. Um, so that's a pretty significant proportion. So that, that's already out there. So that's the first point I'd be making, that 
the idea of a single formative assessment tool is not the way to go. We need to recognise that there are multiple um, ways of assessing. Um, the second thing I think I'd say is that, and I think this is where John and I would probably be in very significant agreement, um, if we're going to design an assessment tool, it needs to be aligned with our understanding of what progress looks like. Its purpose needs to be to establish where students are in their learning um, and to monitor the progress or the growth that they make over time. At the moment, we have a luxury position where ministers are asking us and we can advise them. But if, as I certainly would argue very, very strongly, in fact, it would be a bottom line for me, that if it's not voluntary, we shouldn't do it. For all kinds of perverse reasons, if you make something compulsory. But if it's voluntary, surely we also have to get some of our highly accomplished elite teachers advising. Right. So that they we know what they want yep. as much as what they know what yep. we think. Yeah. And I think that's going to be a critical part of the discussion. Without that, I think we're going to have a little difficulty. And so when you ask teachers what they want, they want resources to help them do the job. They don't want a single tool. They don't want another set of data. Yeah. They want help in the interpretation. They want to help in bringing this together. And I think that's where the concept of a formative assessment something, and I call it a reporting engine, which people don't like those words, to get away from the notion that it's a single tool. We don't need to rebuild PAT. It works very well. Right. But, and, and there's a lot of systems out there. Yeah. But how you bring it together so that schools have resources to answer the questions about what impact is, what growth is, where they are on the progressions. And so we have to listen to how they want us to help them do that. The panel session also included questions from the audience. One educator said he was a fan of both panellists and Dylan Williams' work on formative assessment and was looking to reconcile the three. John Hattie started by saying he and William are good friends. And certainly Dylan has been quite a critic of my work um, and has written quite about that. And I keep reminding him that um, it's fascinating that he has the same story using the same methods as I did, but he doesn't like his methods anymore. So I said, fine, ignore the methods, the story is what matters. And we've met up quite recently, and uh, scarily we're in screaming agreement about many of these issues, not the methods. And so when I ask him questions about you know, his work, uh, interestingly, uh, Education Foundation, um, SVA came out with a report a couple of weeks ago of a randomised control of Dylan's work in England, very successful. Uh, doing the kind of things that we're talking about here. How do you help teachers have the resources to better understand what their impact's about, who they're having their impact on, and to what magnitude? And it came out quite well. No surprise, one hopes. Um, but it's not easy. It's not dramatic in terms of getting the impact that you want quickly, because it does require a lot of expertise. And so my argument is that we have to invest in the professional learning relating to using that expertise, using these tools not the professional learning about the tools, but about how teachers and, and principals and kids work together to make those interpretations. That's exactly what Dylan's doing. Uh, Paul Black told me many years ago, if you're going to do this, don't call it formative assessment. It's one of those buzzwords that everyone misunderstands. Yeah. Like Michael Scriven, when he invented formative and summative, never talked about formative and summative assessment. Any assessment can be formative or summative, depends when. When the cook tastes the soup, it's formative. When the guest tastes the soup, it's summative. One hope the soup improves. But that notion of how we phrase this to get it right. And so, yes, after quite a few years of violent disagreement, Dylan and I have come together and said, hey, we're gonna write some things together about the story 
Maybe our methods differ. Jeff Masters argues the labels of formative and summative assessment aren't particularly helpful. You know, I took courses at the University of Chicago many, many years ago with Benjamin Bloom, who introduced those terms into the assessment literature. I've never found them useful. I've never found the concepts of formative and summative yeah. useful um, throughout my career. Um, I understand, um, and I mean, Dylan's the opposite. Dylan's built his career around trying to drive a wedge between these things. Um, um, I understand that teachers make ongoing assessments. They're constantly assessing and judging and... And, and monitoring how students are going. The kind of assessment that I'm interested in is, is I recognise the value of that, but I'm also interested in assessment that occasionally says, let me just pause and take stock of where this student is up to in his or her learning. What point have they reached and what progress have they made over time? So it's, it's not something that's ongoing. It's, it's an event in time, if you like, um, and it, it is for that purpose. Um, for me, the fundamental purpose of assessment is, is to establish and to understand where students are up to in, their in an aspect of their learning yeah. at a point in time. Yeah. You can then use that formatively, if you like. I don't mind the adverb. Um, you can use it formatively to plan the next steps, to decide what to do, um, how to set appropriate targets and challenges for a student's learning, if you want to. Or you can use it summatively, if you like, to reflect on the progress that a student's made. I mean, that's an assessment of learning, of the progress that a student's made, assess, an assessment of the learning that's occurred. Um, so that's the way that I think about assessment. And um, I, I think, you know, we, we love make, creating dichotomies in this field and pretending that there's black and white and good and bad. Yeah, it's not going to help um, us. And it's, I think it's been very unhelpful over the years. Finally, the panellists gave their views on evidence-based practice and the Gonski recommendation to create a national evidence institute here in Australia. Here's Jeff Masters. A starting point for me would be to say, as John did, I think, that we need to think about evidence broadly. And if we move forward with a narrow understanding of what evidence-based practice looks like, that is, if we think that evidence-based practice is simply implementing things that have been demonstrated through randomised control trials to be effective, then we're adopting a narrow definition of evidence-based practice. Right. If you go back to the original definition um, of evidence-based practice in medicine, they make it very clear that it's the integration of expert clinical practice right. with yeah. external research. And, yeah. and if we're to have an evidence-based institute or an evidence-based fund or evidence-based anything else, the starting point for me is it needs to recognise that there are what John called two, I might actually call it three, forms of evidence because for me the first form of evidence is establishing what you're dealing with, what, what are your starting points, then there's evidence about what are likely to be effective strategies, interventions that I can adopt and three, what's the evidence that it's making a difference and how can I evaluate my impact? Look, it's not going to come out right. The days of evidence are over. My gosh, I've got 300 million in my sample. Yeah. You go to EFF, you go to what yeah. works, the, yeah. days of the days of implementing evidence are here. Right. And if I, I would love to see an evidence-based institution that do those three things, but the one that I struggle with the most, particularly as I get older, is I don't think we're as good at implementation as we think we are. How do I get schools that are implementing this particular program to talk to other schools that have been implementing this program? What were their enablers and barriers? How do we get them talking to each other about their evidence? Yep. So it's not... A, body of stuff up there that's massaged and blamanged and sent out to schools. Yeah. Yeah. It's how do we build evidence across the sector.
That's all for this special episode. To keep listening or to download all of our podcasts for free, whether it's from our series on school improvement, behaviour management, global education, teaching methods, action research, or our monthly podcast, The Research Files, just visit acer.ac forward slash teacher iTunes or soundcloud.com forward slash teacher hyphen acer. The full transcript of this podcast is available at teachermagazine.com.au. That's where you'll also find the latest articles, videos and infographics for free.